Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. I am sort of uh, near the back where the shade is, uh, kind of near the entrance to the bowling alley. Okay, I'm going to come out that door. I'm just using the bathroom. Oh, okay, great. I'll see you in a second. Okay, bye. Hey, I'm Phelan Johnson in for Laura Lynch. I'm next to a bowling alley on a sweltering day in Montreal. And yes, this is still what on earth. We're still bringing you a world of climate solutions. This one just happens to be tucked behind a parking lot in Notre Dame de Grasse, or NDG, a neighborhood in the west end of the city. Hi, good, nice to meet you, Phelan. How are you doing? Good, hot. I know it's like the hottest day. I know that's why I told. That's why I told you what to wear. Yeah, yeah. I brought. I brought a shirt. Lisa Mintz leads me past the parking lot, down a set of small stairs. A canopy of trees shades us from the unrelenting sun. The place feels almost like a secret garden, and in some ways, it kind of is. See, I've been here before, and I had no, no idea. idea that was there. Yeah. yeah. So you want to come around to the entrance? Do you sure. want to go, do you want to put in my almost three years I, I in Montreal, I never knew this place existed. It's called La Falaise Saint-Jacques. It's a corridor of trees, bushes, ferns, and other native vegetation, right in the middle of a very urban part of the city. Lisa's been involved with the Falaise for a number of years. Back in 2015, she created Sauvant La Falaise, a citizen-led group with the mission to protect the green space. She now runs Urban Nature, an organization involved in environmental education, including kids' camps on the Falaise. Lisa's taking me for a first-hand look at a corridor of connected habitat, which conservationists say can be crucial as climate change, industry, and development force animals to move. Later on, we'll hear another example of woodland caribou, and I'll learn about the benefits of spaces like these for people, too, as our world warms. As Lisa and I walk the winding path, we see bird feeders and signs describing birds, butterflies, and plants you might see on your walk. But it seems the secret is out, and we aren't the only ones in the park today. <laughs> and there goes a the dog. Yeah. <laughs> um, Hi, would it possible be possible for you to keep your dog on a leash? There's birds that are nesting right now on the ground. Okay. Thank you. Sophie? Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Okay, what's next? Okay. And what is the Falaise Saint-Jacques? So the Falaise Saint-Jacques is an escarpment. So a Falaise means escarpment. It is four kilometers long and it runs from Westmount to Montreal West. It is one of the 10 eco-territories on the island of Montreal. It was in the past the side of a lake, a Lac Saint-Pierre or Lac Alutre, um, which is why it's so steep. It hasn't always been a green space full of birds and dog walkers. Decades ago, 
it actually served as an unofficial dumping ground. All the rubble from making Highway 15 was put on top of whatever was here. And people used to just dump everything. You wouldn't believe some of the things we found in here. Like stoves, gazette boxes. Uh, I, I, we found a deep fryer once, a whole contents to somebody's, uh, to somebody's living room. Like, seriously. It was an embarrassing sight for the city. Many visitors would see this unofficial dump as they drove in. This was happening during things like Expo 67 and the Olympics in 1976. Over the years, there were a few attempts to clean up the falaise, but as the city changed and developed, the falaise seemed to be forgotten by many and left behind. But eventually, citizens and politicians started pushing for the space to gain park status. Uh, do you remember the first time that you came here? Can you tell me the story? So I used to bike along Saint-Jacques or I'd walk along Saint-Jacques um, and I'd see all these trees and I was always wondering what on earth is behind all these buildings. So um, one day, it was in the winter, um, I, I was leaving work. It was about five o'clock, so it was starting to get dark. And there were all these birds calling, mostly crows, because there's these crows, like thousands of them, that nest on the falaise. Anyways, they were, they were calling and yelling. And I, I went over and I found that there was like a, a break in the fence right where they were calling. And I went down this really steep slope. It was not like what we just went down. And um, I'm like, oh, my God, it's getting dark. Am I going to be able to get out of here? What am I going to do? And then I found... Um, at the bottom, there were these pretty fresh cross-country ski, cross ski tracks. And I'm like, oh, good. Well, somebody's been here, so that means I can get in or I can get out. So I just followed them, and I learned later on that those uh, ski tracks belonged to Peter McQueen, who is the city councillor for this area, and became a really big supporter of the Falaise Saint-Jacques, and still is. He was actually the first person to pass a motion to protect the Falaise Saint-Jacques. He passed it in NDG borough, but eventually, just a couple years later, it got passed by the entire city council of Montreal, including the mayors, yes. And why would you say that the Falaise is important? The Falaise Saint-Jacques is important for a lot of reasons. I mean, the one that, that hits my heart the hardest is the birds. Um, one of the biggest reasons that we're losing our birds is because of habitat loss. This kind of space, which is wild and can, can house birds and, you know, gives them a place to rest when they're, when they're migrating. On either side, there are, so you have the industrial area at the top and then you have a big, huge um, highway, highway interchange at the bottom. And so this provides a place for birds to rest as they're heading out to the West Island or when they're coming back. And it also provides a place for them to spend their summers. And how important is this corridor of green space to the wildlife? I know you've talked a little bit about it, but I'm wondering if I, I can tell you're passionate about it. So I really want to dig in here. <laughs> well, I mean, right now I can hear a whole bunch of different birds that are singing. Um, I hear like some different warblers some red starts and robins. And, you know, it really makes my heart sing when I hear this. 
I also love the fact that it's just so wild. In French, there's a word for it called friche, and I think that does more justice than any of our English words do, where it's just like left to grow on its own. So like the different levels can accommodate different types of species. So in the winter, we have deer that come down here. You can tell because you, they leave their tracks all over the place, but they usually leave in the summer or in the spring. Um, there are foxes that live here. A couple days ago, we saw a fox with its little kits. It was so cute. There's so many things that haven't even been discovered about this place. And I think that's it. I think it's the whole thing. You come down off of this industrial street, and then all of a sudden, you're in a place that feels like you're in the jungle, or you're going to discover something. And people have just fallen in love with that, really. What, what, do you, what would you say the benefits are of having um, this green space here? Oh my God, there's so many of them. Um, right now you can hear some of our kids coming down. These kids live in the neighborhood. They can bring their parents here later and they can have like this huge green space to play in, which is like totally amazing. Hi. Hi guys, just, just watch, Hi guys. Out. watch your step, watch your step. Have fun. <laughs> So we have a big group of uh, kids coming from one of the day camps. Hello. Is this for me? Wait. We're filling the bird feeder. Oh, we're oh, filling one, it. One handful. Oh my God, handful. that's so you cute. Just one handful? Just one handful. What does that mean? One, one minute. Okay, one minute. Building bird feeders on the fillers. Okay, stop, stop, stop. That's one handful. You've got to step, step, step. We're going to have to do it. We're not doing it. We're not doing it, guys. You guys are going to do it. Once the kids know that this is here, they can bring their parents here. And the other, like these, a lot of these families don't have cars. They can't go someplace like Oka Park. This one you can bike to, you can walk to, you can take the 90 to. There are so many studies that were done that um, are, are talking about how important green space is to your health. And like the wilder, the better. Then there's heat islands. All of these areas are heat islands. And this is the place that cools it down. And people can come here when their apartments are like totally unbearable, like right now. Come here and enjoy themselves. Um, there's no like rules. It's not really for, for doing sports. It's more like, but if you want, I mean, there's places you can bike and walk and stuff like that. But it's more really for, well, for me, for reflection, for seeing the birds that you don't normally see, for, you know, being able to get some calm time and some quiet time, you know, and all the craziness that goes on in our lives. You know, it's four kilometers long. You can easily get lost from other people. <laughs> <laughs> and in terms of climate change, how important is this space to the oh. city? Oh my God. Well, that's the thing. You don't have a lot of spaces like this left. That's, that's exactly it. And re-greening spaces, it takes time. And everywhere I go, I see more things being built. So, um, no, no, it's important from our carbon footprint point of view. It's important because of the heat islands it's important because it's the lungs of ndg it's been called we're actually doing some um 
some studies on pollution to see what the pollution levels are like in different places in the Falaise um, and how the Falaise and different parks are, um, are, are affecting the pollution levels. Hi. <laughs> are you leaving? Uh, no, we're just going to up to season one. Okay, okay, I'll say hi after. You're very popular in here. <laughs> How has this space uh, impacted your eco-anxiety? Oh, God. Yeah, so I didn't even know. There was no word for eco-anxiety when I had it. I didn't even know. Like... I swear, I wanted to think, I mean, that's what TV is about. That's what overeating is about. I mean, for me, you know, just trying not to pay attention to what's going on around you. As you see all these trees getting cut down and all of these horrible things happening to nature. And it's really, really hard when you listen to all of the news to think that you can make a difference. And, but you can. Like, the, it's amazing. What do you hope for the future of this space? Well, I, I hope that my goal is to create a green belt in Montreal. So I would like to see this be the center of this green belt that would span Montreal and maybe out to the West Island and maybe even farther because there are, there are other parks that are under construction off of the island, not under construction, that are being consolidated off of the island. So if we can connect up with them, you know, I'd love to see corridors all across Quebec because the thing is, it's the truth that animals are being driven out of their habitats. Something has to be done to save spots for them so they're not running around across roads and getting hit by cars, so that they have enough to eat and they're able to have some place to come back to when they finish their migrations and stuff. You know, it's, it's, it's sad, but you know what? You do what you can. And you think, oh, I did this. And that's really great. I didn't think I could. <laughs> now let's meet someone else who's working to protect habitat corridors for wildlife. Michael, hello. Hi, uh, hi, Phil. Nice to meet you. I'm guest hosting for the show this week, and I'm Indigenous. I'm from Six Nations uh, in southern Ontario, and so I'm Mohawk and Tuscarora. I'm Bear Clan, and so it's always exciting for me when I get to talk to and interview other Indigenous folks. I was wondering if you were a caribou hunter yourself. Um, I, I'd like to be. Uh, it's just right now on our territory, there's not enough left. So we don't hunt it anymore. But I did go uh, up in uh, northern Quebec in Cree territory a couple of years ago to do a hunt. So uh, I have had the chance to hunt one. Unfortunately, not on my territory. Yeah, my dad's gone moose hunting up north, but we mostly have deer in our territory. We're deer folks, but yeah. I have some moose in my freezer right now. Same here. I'm more of a moose and deer hunter just because we're protecting caribou now. So. Yeah. We moved on to moose, but we're still trying to get caribou back on our territory in healthy numbers so we can uh, we can hunt it again for sure. Yeah, that'll be exciting. I'm sure I'm like, I, I don't think I've had caribou. I've had elk and I and I really like elk. Elk might be my favorite. Don't tell my people. <laughs> well, caribou is <laughs> my favorite. I can tell you that for the little that I've had, it's, uh, it's even better than moose and deer. Okay, time to catch you up. 
I've headed east out of Montreal, up the St. Lawrence River, over the spruce and balsam trees that make up the boreal forest. I'm talking with Michael Ross, a member of the Inu Essipit First Nation, who has been helping to ensure that in the future, his community has access to a valuable traditional food source, one that his people have relied on for generations, caribou. The once thriving herds of caribou in his territory have become fewer and fewer. Michael hopes to see that change. Can you give our listeners a little intro into who you are and what you do? Yeah, for sure. Um, So again, thanks for having me. I'm Michael Ross. I'm the Director of Development and Territory for Essipit First Nation. I have a degree in wildlife biology and a master's in renewable resources uh, from McGill University. Uh, And I've been working with my community and other First Nations for the last 15 years now. And what do caribou mean to your nation, to the Inu Essipit? When I discuss caribou with elders, the first thing that elders tell me is without caribou, there is no Inu. It's provided elders with food, clothing, uh, clothing tools uh, for hundreds of years. And, and elders talk about how it fed them during famine. So for us, basically, it's now our turn to save caribou. And is there anyone who can still hunt caribou? Or, you know, when did that have to stop? Yeah, well, for uh, I'll speak for our community because there are other areas in Quebec where there are, uh, there are still communities that have enough numbers to to allow a hunt. But for us, we created a ban on hunting in 1998, so that was the last time we uh, we allowed caribou hunting on our territory, just because we were seeing numbers decline. So that's the last time that we did hunt caribou on our territory. Right now, we have uh, uh, an agreement with uh, the Cree communities where we have an exchange and we're allowed to go hunt on their territory. So uh, so I'd like to uh, to make sure, say, uh, give them a thanks right now to, to make sure that we keep that link uh, or that taste of caribou as well, just because of that agreement we have with the Cree Nation. And there has been logging in your territory for decades and decades. How has this affected the caribou herds? In our territory, logging started more intensely during the 1950s and 60s. Um, and again, speaking with the elders, they used to tell us that caribou was right along the St. Lawrence River uh, back in, in that time. We're very close to the community, so we're a community right along the St. Lawrence River. And right now, it just with logging that, that, that started on our territory, occurring from south towards uh, the north, caribou receded towards the north in an area uh, called Montvalin. So that right now is the last little area where there is caribou in our territory. And the Inu Essipit have worked for decades to protect caribou. And in 2020, the Quebec government announced the Akumunan Biodiversity Reserve. What did it take to get there? Oh, it took us almost, uh, well, not took us almost. It took us around 20 years to get it, uh, to get it officially approved. So our work started in 2000 when uh, the Quebec government announced a strategy to protect 8% of the territory back then. And uh, so so uh, when that was announced, uh, we already had a project in place that we wanted to move forward, uh, uh, which was Akumunan. Uh, so so we proposed that, uh, that project to the Quebec government. Michael, can you tell us what does Akumunan mean? Yeah, so Akumunan means uh, haven of peace uh, in the Inu language. So for us, uh, we wanted to create that. So caribou and other species as well had an area uh, where they could, uh, you know, live in peace. So that's why we call it haven of peace. 
And I understand that the nation has a new proposal for habitat protection in the works. What can you tell me about that? Right now, we are uh, we are working on an IPCA project. So IPCA is Indigenous Protected and Conserved Area. Uh, it's a concept that was uh, initially pushed by uh, many, many, many First Nations in Canada. So for us, uh, right now, we want to create some sort of corridor or another large area between two existing biodiversity reserves. So we can create a large area where there are still some pristine forest and where other areas where we would have to restore. Uh, on a background with regards to caribou, caribou need around areas of a thousand square kilometers, uh, according to scientific data, to have a chance to thrive and, and survive long term. Uh, so I was mentioning earlier that Akumunan is around 282. So if we combine that new IPCA with Akumunan and the other uh, existing biodiversity reserve that is, is more to the south, we would create around that area of, uh, of close to a thousand kilometers. And how is the decision made uh, in what areas to include in the biodiversity reserve? Uh, the final decision uh, right now is with the Quebec government. So basically uh, what we have to do is submit officially a proposal at the Quebec government and try to work with them as much as possible to, uh, to create it. There will be resistance, of course, we know that uh, just because there are a few patches left of, of good habitat for caribou, which is also, uh, let's say, the habitat that the forestry companies are looking after. So, so they're looking pretty much at the same, uh, same areas. We need as well, ideally, uh, support from Quebecers, from Canadians, uh, from uh, people at the international level as well. Uh, mm -hmm. just to get that moving forward. So it will be uh, a tough challenge, but one that we're willing to take on for sure. And are there other factors at play when you talk about this resistance piece? Um, well, the resistance, uh, again, mostly comes from uh, people that are, are develop developing the territory. So I, I've been talking about a lot about forestry just because it is the main actor on our territory. We all have a lot of mining companies like other communities do. Uh, mm -hmm. But yeah, for sure, the, the Quebec government takes into account socioeconomic impacts. And that's what we're looking at. So uh, there's going to be a lot of uh, of influence coming in from the outside just to, to, to try to minimize what we have or what we're willing to do. Uh, but for sure, uh, we're willing to, uh, to, to move it forward because it's extremely, extremely important for our culture. Why is it so important to maintain corridors of habitat for woodland caribou in this territory, specific to this territory? Caribou need about uh, like areas of, of let's say pristine or very very uh, undisturbed undisturbed forests of about a thousand square kilometers, and and we know and we understand that there needs to be uh, socioeconomic benefits uh, as well to to local communities. I mean, we we have the same issues as a First Nation as well for people to have jobs and, and to work, but so so that's where corridors actually come in. Between those areas of, of let's say, uh, large undisturbed forests, there needs to be that connection between those areas as well. And that's where uh, corridors come in. And, and corridors don't have to be as large scale. And there can be development around those corridors. But just making sure that caribou has those corridors to displace from, from large areas, from one large area to another. And our, our sister community in Pesamit, 
has also proposed uh, a, a large area of, of undisturbed forest. And we're working together to make sure that there is a corridor between what they are proposing and what we are proposing. What do you think governments, conservation groups, and non-Indigenous communities in Canada need to understand about Indigenous jurisdiction when proposing these superhighways for wildlife? Uh, well, I mean, it's uh, often Canadians or, or, or people in Quebec don't necessarily understand First Nation rights. So I, I need the first thing uh, uh, that needs to be done, I think, is just raising awareness of, of the rights that we have on the territory and and just the, the, the values that we put on the land. For us, the land is at the base of our rights, the base of our culture. And just understanding that we're not anti-development, but that we're there to try to balance out the development and and with regards to conservation in our culture as well. So I think that's one of the major issues that, that's being understood more and more, to be honest. So I think uh, the last few years there have been uh, improvements in dialogue and understanding that our rights and our culture are taken at the same level as socioeconomic benefits. So, mm-hmm. And what would you say is at stake for you and your community? Uh, just the health of our territory, uh, the link of, uh, of caribou to our culture. I mean, if, uh, if nothing is done at this point, uh, we, have, we have gained Akunan, which is uh, an area right now where there is transmission of culture to, uh, to our, our youth, uh, with our elders. Uh, but for us and, and for our link with caribou, it's, it's not enough at this point. And science has shown that. Uh, so that's why we're working on uh, a, a larger scale protected area just to make sure that we keep that link with caribou, that we keep that link with, uh, with our culture, with our elders, with our youth. Well, thank you for talking with me today, Michael. It's been a pleasure learning about this. And I really do hope that uh, one day you get to head out onto the land and uh, hunt a caribou again and pass on those teachings. They seem so important. Well, thank you very much for having me. And, and for, for me, uh, I have a young daughter and I keep saying this and I try not to get emotional when I say it. But for me, I don't think I will hunt the caribou on, on the land in, in my lifetime. But I'm doing all this to make sure that my daughter and other youth in our community have the chance one day to, to do that. Thank you so much for talking with us today, Michael. Thank you very much for having me. And by the way, we asked the government of Quebec about its stance on the indigenous protected and conserved area Michael was talking about, and about how the province balances forestry with preserving habitat. They didn't respond to our questions by deadline. You're listening to What on Earth. I'm Phelan Johnson, sitting in for Laura Lynch. Coming up, all aboard, we hear about the first passenger train in Canada that runs on hydrogen. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? 
I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better cotton or polyester tea or coffee for answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions subscribe to living planet wherever you listen to podcasts it's been hot here in montreal recently but montrealers haven't been the only ones sweltering in fact a few days ago the world experienced its hottest day ever recorded globally that's thanks to the double whammy of climate change plus el nino And extreme heat is more dangerous for some groups of people, including older adults. So if you or someone you love is at higher risk, what should you be doing now to stay safe? We asked What on Earth producer Rachel Sanders to find out. There's already been some spicy summer weather in some parts of Canada. And when it gets hot so early in the season, it can catch you off guard. Susan Fletcher had a close call with the heat at a football game in Winnipeg last month. I was at the Bomber game, the preseason game last Friday, and I kind of got a little bit nauseated, a little bit dizzy. I'm thinking, what's going on here? And then I realized this might be just a mild case of heat stroke. So I went in the washroom, I put some cold water on the back of my neck, I took out my water bottle and started chucking water and absolutely felt better. Susan is the executive director for Pembina Active Living. That's a group for seniors in Winnipeg. And she's a senior herself, which is one of the factors that increases your risk in hot weather. As we get older, those mechanisms that we have that help us to manage heat, they just don't work as well. That's Dr. Susan Deering. She's a family doctor in Toronto, specializing in care for the elderly. She says when we get older, the blood flow to our skin decreases, so we don't sweat as much. Plus, older people don't feel the heat in the same way, so it's harder to tell when you're too hot. And there's another thing that changes, your social capital. So social capital is all of those resources that we have that are outside of ourselves that help us protect from whatever stressors we might come across. It may be the family that you have, the relationships that you have with friends or neighbors or at work. All of those things sort of help us to stay healthy, not just physically, but also emotionally and mentally as well. As we get older, retire from work and get less mobile, our social capital can decrease, which leaves us more vulnerable. And Dr. Deering says right now, early in the summer, is when we're at highest risk from heat because our bodies aren't acclimated yet. So what can you do right now to protect yourself or the elders in your life? The first thing is make a plan. So thinking in advance, do I have somewhere I can go to get cool? If I have air conditioning, is it working? Do I need to have it serviced? Do you have people in your life that you can call when it gets hot? You know, if you're looking after somebody who's an older adult, you can help them to make sure that those things happen. Heat plan in place? Check. Next, Dr. Deering says, check in with your doctor about your risk level. There are some medications that can put people at higher risk for heat-related illness, particularly some medications that are used to treat things like blood pressure or heart disease or dementia. And so having a conversation with your family doctor and just saying, you know, what do I need to watch out for? Is there anything that we should consider changing if there's a heat wave? Talk to your doctor. Check. And when it does get hot, make sure you're paying attention to how you feel. 
Dr. Deering says symptoms like confusion, weakness, nausea, or low-grade fever mean you need to drink water and find a place to get cool. If you're a younger person with an elder in your life, check in on them a couple of times a day when it's hot. But whether you have an older adult in your life or not, there's work for everyone to do when it comes to building the social capital in our communities. Get involved. You know, it might be as simple as just getting to know your older neighbor, developing a relationship with them, and then just sort of keeping an eye on them. If you've got the time and the capacity to do so, get involved in what's going on in your neighborhood. Because really, climate change is going to affect all of us, and we all have a role to play. It might be just as simple as impacting that one life of that person on your street that uh, maybe doesn't have somebody. Be a good neighbor. Set that as a long-term goal to check off your list. For What on Earth, I'm Rachel Sanders. For our next story, CBC Climate reporter Emily Chung is taking us for a ride. Emily, hello. Hi, Phelan. Emily, I think we're on a train. I can definitely hear some ding-dings, but not much in the way of a chugga-chugga-choo-choo. Right, and there's no smoke trailing from the exhaust, just water vapor. Because this isn't your typical tourist train, it's actually brand new technology for North America, and it's just down the road from you, in Quebec City. Oh, okay. Yeah, Yeah. it's uh, the first passenger train in Canada and North America that runs on hydrogen. That's very cool. So so did you get a chance to ride this train? I wish. Unfortunately, I haven't. Um, that sound was recorded by my Radio-Canada colleagues. But you can hear the driver, Luc Roy, talking about what it's like to drive this train. He says it's pleasant to drive, very quiet. You don't hear anything as it rolls along. A little further on, you, you didn't hear that part of the clip, but he actually talks about how it's like... The difference between driving, you know, the old train was kind of like a 1980s car and this one's more like a Tesla. <laughs> okay, so can anyone buy a ticket for this train? Yep. I mean, it's it's a tourist train. It's the Train de Charlevoix, a scenic tourist railway. So you leave from Montmorency Falls, just outside Quebec City, and travel east along the St. Lawrence River to Bay St. Paul, which I'm told is a really beautiful and scenic route. And normally there's an old diesel train that runs along there. But this summer, if you book between Wednesday and Sunday until September 30th, you can ride a train called the Caradia Island. And it's made by a French company called Alstom, which you may have heard of because they do have some manufacturing plants in Canada and they make transit vehicles for some Canadian cities. But um, this hydrogen train has taken passengers in eight European countries so far. Uh, But this is its first time in North America. Oh, okay. So how exactly does it work? Well, so this train is actually electric, but it doesn't run on electrified rails or wires like most electric trains. Instead, it has fuel cells on its roof, which work kind of like a battery. So there's a hydrogen tank and it feeds hydrogen into the fuel cells where the hydrogen combines with oxygen in the air to produce electricity and water vapor. Wow. And so... Why would you want to ride a train that runs on hydrogen? Well, as you've probably heard, um, it can be one way to decarbonize heavy transportation, which we know is a challenge. Mm -hmm. Uh, The government of Quebec, which put $3 million into the $8 million project, said it's part of their 2030 plan for a green economy. 
Up until now, trains have been mostly electrified by adding a powered rail or hooking the train up to overhead wires. But that hasn't happened on a big scale in Canada. I mean, here it's considered challenging because the country's big and the population is so spread out. Right, um, right, of course. Yeah, yeah. But with hydrogen, in theory, you don't have to build out all those electrified rails and wires. You can just swap out a diesel train for a fuel cell train and leave the rails the same. You just fuel up with hydrogen instead of diesel. And in fact, some freight railway companies in Canada are working on their own hydrogen locomotives for that reason. Okay, so the infrastructure is kind of there. And I understand this Quebec City passenger train runs on green hydrogen. Tell me more about what that means. Right. So most hydrogen uh, that's produced in the world is gray hydrogen, which is made from fossil fuels. So uh, about 98% of the world's hydrogen in 2021 was gray hydrogen, according to the International Energy Agency. So since it's made from fossil fuels, if you use that hydrogen, you haven't actually decarbonized. Hmm. Now, in the case of the train in Quebec, the hydrogen is made by electrolysis, which means using electricity to split water into hydrogen and oxygen. And because the electricity comes from the Quebec grid, which is mostly hydropower, it's considered green hydrogen. That said, it's not completely carbon-free either because the truck that carries the hydrogen to the train station to refuel the train is a diesel truck. Aha. Uh-huh. So it sounds like there's still some challenges to be worked out. Yeah, the infrastructure isn't all there yet. Um, Serge Arnois, CEO of Arnois Energie, which supplies the hydrogen, said, ideally what you'd want if this were more permanent is for the hydrogen to be produced at the train station. So the other thing is right now they're still testing, so the train isn't running the full route, which normally goes all the way to La Bay. So far, the hydrogen train only does a two-and-a-half-hour leg to Bay Saint-Paul, and then you have to switch to a diesel train for the last hour and a half. Hmm. But the railway hopes to be able to run the hydrogen train on the full route later. So should we be expecting more hydrogen passenger trains in North America? Is this something we're going to see more of? Well, there, there are still some bigger picture challenges. I mean... The fact that green hydrogen is expensive, up to four times more expensive than hydrogen from fossil fuels, according to Canada's Environment Commissioner, and we're still not making a whole lot of it. And of course, this is new technology. Um, you might have heard that like fossil fuels, hydrogen is flammable and explosive, but not quite in the same way. So um, even though it's considered safe in Europe, this train, and There are already hydrogen cars and buses on the road in Canada. A hydrogen train still needs to be accepted by Canadian regulators for public rail lines. Okay. Uh, And given that this is just a demonstration on a private rail line and there are still a lot of challenges to overcome, is this a big deal? Well, everyone I talk to involved in this project or other hydrogen projects thinks it's a very big deal. I mean, it is a first in North America. Hmm. Here's Robert Stasco, executive director of the Ontario-based Hydrogen Business Council. I think the most important thing that's going to come out of it is people's awareness and comfort with the technology, because a lot of decision makers, particularly at the political level, haven't a clue about anything about hydrogen. So the trainmaker Alstom has already tested and sold dozens of hydrogen trains in Europe. Robert thinks there's a lot of potential in North America. I'd love to see something like that in Ontario, for instance, running between Union Station and Pearson Airport to replace the diesel-operated UP Express right now. And actually, just this past Thursday, the Greater Toronto Airports Authority announced that Ontario's first public hydrogen filling station is being installed at Pearson Airport. Okay. 
And what about the Quebec train? Is there any chance it'll stay past September? Well, it's a demonstration unit, remember? So after September 30th, it goes off to demonstrate that technology in another location somewhere else in the world. Right. Um, but I did talk to Nancy Betty, general manager of Réseau Charlevoix, which runs the train de Charlevoix, about her thoughts for the future. And she said now that the railway knows this train works where they are and could help them be greener, they do hope to buy one. Well, Emily, I think you should head up to Montreal and maybe we could take a, a trip on this train. That would be really cool. I'd love that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Emily. You're welcome. How often do you think about the climate cost of your clothes? According to the World Bank, the fashion industry accounts for 10% of global carbon emissions. Well, Alexa Lazat is a Métis artist and sustainable clothing maker who is fighting this trend. In the fall of 2022, What on Earth producer Molly Siegel stopped by her home studio in Burnaby, B.C. for a visit. Hi. Thanks so much for coming. Nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you. Alexa Lazat welcomes me into her apartment, which she just moved into, and introduces herself. I'm a Métis artist and educator, and I come from the Métis community of North Vermilion Settlement across the river from Fort Vermilion in northern Alberta on my father's side, and then I also have European ancestry on my mother's side. In her kitchen, there's a pot simmering on the stove. So I'd cut like this. On a November day, you might guess it would contain soup. And then basically I would just pull apart the pull it apart like this so that I can really reach the center. So then I have kind of this pile of leaves of cabbage, and then it goes right into the water. But cabbage and water are the only ingredients for now. So we have our pot here um, with some red cabbage boiling and the, the water is already turning really purple and it's only been boiling for about 30 minutes. It's that rich purple color that interests her. She'll use it to dye cotton fabric and ribbon to make a skirt. And we'll get back to that later. Lizotte's business is called Desert Métis Creations. She sells beadwork on her website and on her Etsy shop, and she also makes ribbon skirts. So this this is a post-contact artwork because the cotton and the materials did come from European trading. It was kind of leftover fabrics that were taken and created into these skirts, these leftover ribbons and leftover cotton pieces. And that is part of the story of how ribbon skirts came about and how it kind of became part of different Indigenous cultures across Turtle Island. Desert Métis is a nod to her Métis heritage, but also to her upbringing in Nevada, where her mom is from. And growing up there was kind of difficult because my dad didn't really want to bring us back to his home community because of his experiences there, you know, as much as we have a lot of beautiful things going on in our communities, we also have a lot of harm going on right now. Um, and, and so he didn't really want to bring his, his children around that. 
I think it was really critical to my identity to understand where I came from and I didn't have that and and so I felt really lost for a long time. I felt like I didn't really belong to anywhere. When I was living in Nevada, you know, people would ask me what my ethnicity was and where I was from and it was always hard for me to answer. Lizotte says these experiences led her to go to university in Vancouver at UBC. And that was kind of where my my uh, identity reconnection began. You know, UBC is on Musqueam land, and so we had a lot of Musqueam people come. And I looked up to a lot of them, and, and I had some elders in my life that really helped me solidify my identity. She got involved with the Urban Native Youth Association, where she learned how to bead. And it's so crazy because when I was first learning how to bead, I was so frustrated and it was so difficult uh, to pick up. Now she sells beaded earrings, among other pieces. Lazat leads me to her home studio, nestled neatly in her bedroom. So I have my special corner here. So I've I've tried to make it as... as uh, special as possible so I put my drum up on my wall uh, to remind me to have strength. A sewing machine sits on a small table. Behind it a shelf home to her beads, hides, ribbons, fabrics and finished pieces. She pulls out a ribbon skirt. So this was my first skirt I ever made which is crazy. And this one's really important to me because it's red. My grandmother, who I never really got to know, my Métis grandmother, um, she, she always wore red. That's the story of her. Not just red, she tells me, but Buttertown red. Buttertown, what North Vermilion Settlement is also called. Lizotte visited when she was 14 years old, meeting some of her relatives for the first time. It's to me it's one of the most beautiful places on earth. It's just trees and grass and hills and flatland located on the Peace River. The community was part of a historical trading route. In 2018, an ice jam on the Peace River caused flooding in the community. And another flood happened just 2 years later. There was a flood in 2020. Um, in April, I believe. And so it flooded both Fort Vermilion and North Vermilion settlements, so both the north and south side of the river. The science is clear. Climate change makes floods more likely to happen. But climate change wasn't on Lazat's mind just yet. This flood that happened in 2020 actually took 150 homes out. And so it was really devastating to the community because there's only about 800 people in Fort Vermilion. So 150 is a huge number. And so I ended up going to visit for Thanksgiving in 2020, which would have been in October. And I just remember seeing all these families put up in these trailers in this this piece of land that was so, it was just mud. Like it was just all mud. And it was these small trailers so close to each other and just rows of them so it was it was really devastating to see the families and how they were set up there and that it was October and the flood happened in April and they were still there in October and it was devastating to see um, one of my aunties her piece of land that she had in North Vermilion Settlement the devastation that that her piece of land had 
seeing all of this firsthand, Lizotte went back just six weeks later to help. She got a job with Alberta Health Services as a flood recovery worker, and another with the Métis Nation of Alberta as a community navigator. Um, kind of from the social and psychological perspective. And so that was what I did for over a year. In the spring of 2022, in the Northwest Territories, just across the border from northern Alberta, another flood hit. This spring, there was another flood in the nearby Dene community to my home community. And, and all of these things just kind of started adding up and solidifying. And I started realizing that this is, you know, this is now the story of the North. Like, you have to be scared of flooding and, and people's lives are at stake. Northern Canada has already warmed about three times the rate of the rest of the world. With the stakes continuing to get higher, climate action has become central to Lazat in running her business. And talking to people about sustainable fashion is part of what action means to her. And so all of this just started adding up, and this was kind of what led to the presentation that I was able to give with Métis Nation of Alberta on, on climate initiatives and, and ways that we can change. And kind of this project that I have around fabrics and how clothing is really important in, in climate initiatives, our choices in clothing. What was the story behind you reevaluating the materials you were using and, and trying to uh, turn more to, to cotton and to um, dyeing using like uh, natural natural processes? Um, it's it's funny actually. I I was approached by a customer who said she wanted a skirt, but she wanted it to be a hundred percent compostable. And so she asked me that, and I was like, okay, yeah, I'll I'll try to come up with something. And so I started doing some research, and and I started learning about these fabrics, and I learned about the importance of fabrics like cotton and linen. She used unbleached cotton for the skirt, but then there was another inspiration when it came to choosing a color. I had heard this story that um, Indigenous women and Métis women used to dye porcupine quills with berry juice. You know, I just heard this tiny, tiny story, but it stuck with me. It was a big piece of, you know, my project today and my knowledge because I took that tiny story I had and it molded into me then furthering and doing research and seeing what plants and fruits and vegetables can make different colors. That purple dye using cabbage when I walk through the door? That's just one example. Lizotte also uses turmeric for yellow, beets for a pinkish purple. So if I can talk about this skirt and what I'm doing, then I just hope that it opens up people's minds to their choices in fashion. And it's also about history too, because when I'm doing all these things, you know, it's helping me connect to my Métis heritage and reminding me that, you know, we used to do this, we used to dye with berry juice, um, and always use, you know, natural materials. So that's, that's told through this cotton skirt that I'm making, which is being dyed with fruits and vegetables. And she saves any leftover materials from her work to create something new. That's even a story that I have of my, my grandma making everything from scratch. You know, everything was always constantly, constantly used. Hardly anything was thrown away. Even with this piece here, this is kind of just a awkward long piece of hide I have from kind of a scrap scrap piece of hide that's only about an inch thick so this is saved and each each piece will be used to create some sort of beadwork even with the beads too there's this thing in the beading community called bead soup she collects all of the extra beads 
and you just make a piece with these kind of random colors. What are some of those choices that you're now making for yourself within this bigger fashion system that we're in? When I when I look at a piece of clothing, I look at it like how long is this going to last me? I I didn't buy too much from the fast fashion brands that you can buy online that are shipped from across across the world, but I did sometimes. So now that is my number one rule. I will not buy fabrics or clothing from from those sorts of stores because a lot of the times those fabrics are polyester. They're not made very well, so a lot of times you'll wear it a few times and then you don't want it anymore. Polyester, a synthetic material that's hard to break down, sometimes made from fossil fuels. So looking for those cottons, linens, hemp blends, and avoiding polyester. You know, so there's the pressure to follow trends, that's one thing, but then there's cost. Yes. Which is a limitation for a lot of people. So that that's definitely something to be mindful. And that's a difficult part of this conversation, because a lot of the times, you know, when we want to buy locally made, you know, healthy materials, it's going to be much more. So my alternative to this is probably thrifting is probably the most important thing to me. Because this way we can look for we can look for clothing that is healthier materials that is going to be at a lower cost. Meanwhile, as Lizotte's purple dye is still cooking away on the stove, we take a look at the results of some of her other slow and careful work. So I do have some fabrics that I can show you. Um, and so what we're looking at here is a yellow cotton and kind of a light purple cotton. Remember the turmeric and the beets? Lizotte points out how the dye took better in some spots than others. This one, you can kind of see some white spots, and so that's it's a journey that's still unfolding for Lazotte as she continues to dye, sew, and beat, and most importantly, to talk about not just what she's doing, but the bigger picture. You know, people ask me about my skirts, and you know, is the colors going to wash out, and all these you know logistic questions. But for me, this skirt making is more about the story of the skirt and a reminder that fabrics matter and our choices in fashion matter. For What on Earth, I'm Molly Siegel. I want to tell you about a story you'll hear on next week's show. It's about a program helping Indigenous youth become leaders in emergency preparedness so that they can help their communities stay safe in the face of wildfires, floods, and other climate hazards. It's called Preparing Our Home. A lot of our youth going to this program, it's their first time, sometimes even leaving their traditional lands. So the opportunity is huge. And to watch Sheena go from the shy little girl, you know, who really didn't couldn't find her voice really and then sitting and listening she was still shy all during the program but then to watch her come home to know that everything she had heard during that week stuck with her and then she came home and she implemented this work you'll be able to hear more about the preparing our home program on next week's show that's all for us this week the show was put together by associate producers daniel piper and zoe yunker Producers Rachel Sanders and Molly Siegel. Thanks this week to Joanne Roberts. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. Catherine Wolfson is our senior producer. 
I'm Phelan Johnson, in for Laura Lynch. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.